Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the webinar, Humanitarian Crisis in Afghanistan. How could Europe respond to growing displacement? My name is Camila Koz, and I am a policy analyst at MPI and MPI Europe. First, I'd like to start with a housekeeping note. Um, if you have any technical problem, please email event at migrationpolicy.org or call 202-266-1929. And we will have a Q&A at the end of the call. Um, there will not be a voice Q&A, so please type any question into the Q&A chat or email events at migrationpolicy.org. Um, we would also like to draw your attention to a commentary that Hane and I wrote linked to today's theme, exploring what key steps the international community needs to consider if it come up with a well thought through um, and sustainable response to the Afghanistan crisis now in the next few months. Um, for now, let me start with a short state of play of the situation in Afghanistan and how European leaders are looking at it. As we're all aware, the Taliban took control of Afghanistan almost a week ago, shortly after the president left the country. This has given way to a period of uncertainty as to what the new regime will look like and what guarantees uh, can be secure for Afghan civilians in terms of rights, particularly for women and girls, minorities, artists, activists. The situation is also worsening um, the economy. And this after a year where the country has already been hit by the COVID-19 pandemic and a series of drought. The World Food Program reported yesterday that Afghanistan may run out of food by September. And so these uncertainties, this pessimistic outlook, but also the risk um, of retaliatory measures by the Taliban when the US withdrawal is completed, explain the dramatic situation that we're seeing now, including at the airport in the past few days. But beyond the airport, we're also seeing more displacement internally, as well as an increase in the number of the people trying to cross to Pakistan and Iran. We know these two countries have hosted Afghan refugees for over four decades now, um, and they're witnessing uh, this new crisis at their borders. The need for humanitarian aid are enormous, um, but what the past decades have also said, tell us is that donors have not previously felt to their promise to deliver sustained assistance. Just only a few months ago, UNHCR reported that the humanitarian appeal for Pakistan was funded only at half per, at 50% and it was as low at 8% for Iran. From Europe, the conversation in the past week has been whether we could relieve, uh, we could leave a replay of the 2015-16 crisis. And many leaders have called not to repeat the mistakes that Europe made at the time. Um, but yet once again, Europe struggles to show a united front to answer the crisis. In the past few days, some have said that Europe has a moral duty to host these refugees, open safe and legal pathways, but others have firmly pushed back this, on this idea and said it would send the wrong signal. Europeans are also playing their political capital to strike deals with state in the immediate neighborhood of Afghanistan, Iran, Pakistan, Iran, so that they continue to host Afghan refugees. Doing so, Europe is also showing its weak spot, um, and this situation gave this country a very powerful leverage over EU leaders, something we've seen um, in the past months with Belarus, Morocco, or Turkey. And so today, we discuss how Europe can respond to this crisis in Afghanistan, whether European country can achieve one coordinated common answer 
or whether we're on the verge of another political crisis within the bloc. If we fail to respond to this protection crisis in the region, could we face a series of small but also larger protection crises in the future? And will Europe once again have to do a lot of firefighting? So to discuss all of this issue, we have three panelists today. Orvasi Patel, who is the head of protection services at the Regional Bureau for Asian Pacific at UNHCR. Nassim Majidi, who is the co-founder and co-director of Samuel O. And Anne Berens, who is the director of the Migration Policy Institute Europe. Um, Orvasi, I'll first turn over to you. Um, the country is going through a major humanitarian crisis with an economy, as I said, already hit by the pandemic through the intensification of fighting in the past few months. Um, you and I share has also been talking about the pressing needs of half a million people who've been internally displaced since the beginning of the year. At this stage, what commitment have you received from the EU and other European donors to support the humanitarian response in, in Afghanistan? Thank you very much, Camille. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, just to say, of US dollars, uh, 62.8 million, which includes preparedness and IDP response uh, in Afghanistan, focusing on protection activities, uh, which include protection monitoring, cash grants for persons with specific needs, psychosocial counseling for GBV survivors, etc., as well as shelter, provision of tents and cash grants, for rental accommodation and transitional shelter materials, as well as core relief items. So this supplementary appeal also outlines the needs for pre preparedness in refugee receiving countries, Iran, Pakistan, and Central Asia, including the establishment of reception and registration centers, provision of emergency shelters and core relief items, as well as support to health facilities. Um, several states in the EU, including Australia, Iceland, uh, New Zealand, US and the SURF mechanism have already pledged, I'm happy to say, um, to the supplementary appeal. And as at, uh, as at this time, we are now 60% funded. So some 37.8 million has uh, been received. But of course that's not enough. And so we are making uh, extreme uh, efforts to increase this uh, um, appeal in, to the international community to ensure that the sustained financial support continues. In terms of the situation in Afghanistan, you mentioned it yourself, the humanitarian needs are great. And with the upcoming winter, uh, the humanitarian system in Afghanistan is also developing a winterization intersectorial response totaling some 20, $240 million, uh, which UNHCR will be part of. So of course, this is something that we would urge European uh, states as, and wider to support us with funding for that exercise. Thank you. Can you maybe, thanks, and can, can you maybe say a bit more about um, the operational capacity of UNHCR to distribute aid within the country um, at this point? And maybe what, what, you know, what other type of support, uh, political maybe, you need from European country to deliver this assistance? Uh, well, UNHCR and partners remain largely operational in all the 34 provinces with plan programs ongoing in 292 districts, providing critical support to some 230,000 IDPs, uh, including, as I mentioned earlier, core relief items, emergency shelter and cash assistance. Um, and this is 
been since the beginning of the year. And I'm glad to say that even um, in the last week, we've been able to have that outreach. Um, we have been able to continue our programming, including the construction of the 19 schools, which includes two girls schools uh, and support to nine, uh, to nine health clinics and cash assistance for persons with specific needs and infrastructure and livelihoods projects. We work with 18 partners, including 13 local NGOs and three uh, international government organizations. And we are operational with a total of 943 staff. Um, there have been some disruptions, unfortunately. Um, in some areas, the Taliban have allowed female staff to continue working, but in some others, there have been a prohibition. Our female border monitors in Jalalabad, for example, have not been able to resume work. We remain very concerned and we echo the UN Secretary General's uh, call for rapid and un unimpeded access for humanitarian workers, both male and female, so they can deliver aid to civilians in need wherever they are. So while the political situation remains highly fluid, now more than ever is the time for the international community to commit to addressing the humanitarian needs of Afghanistan. And while some initial returns of IDPs have been reported, some 32,000 uh, across the country today, there remain several million still displaced with acute humanitarian needs. So we are encouraging member states not only to fund us, but also have political messages to access to territory, freedom of movement within Afghanistan, the right to return, the right to restitution of uh, property. All of this is, all of these protection messaging will of course uh, continue throughout the coming weeks uh, as the situation um, we hope stabilizes in Afghanistan. Thanks. And, and now turning maybe to the situation in country neighboring um, Afghanistan, do you have any estimates about the number of people that have already sought refuge in the region in the past weeks or months? Um, and can you tell us a bit more about the humanitarian needs of this population as well, the communities that host them? Um, uh, well, we've not seen large-scale refugee movements um, into Iran and Pakistan or Central Asia yet. UNHCR continues to monitor the situation on the borders and continues to call on states to keep border crossings open to those seeking asylum. We are aware that some 1,000 Afghans who've arrived in Iran since uh, uh, early this month are currently being hosted by the um, authorities in three sites near the border uh, in Iran, while 800 newly arrived Afghans have approached UNHCR in Tehran. Uh, UNHCR partners have provided basic assistance to some of these new arrivals. The authorities in Iran had previously estimated up to 5,000 Afghans arriving per day, up to three times the previously estimated daily average. Here on the Iranian side of the border, we have very limited access to the border, but we are trying to gain access um, through uh, discussions with the Iranian government. Um, we know of over 4,000 Afghans who've arrived in Tajikistan via air thus far and have been received by UNHCR's legal partner. And another 608 new Afghan arrivals were interviewed in household service by UNHCR Pakistan. Um, we know that the humanitarian response of the Afghan situation has been long underfunded. Um, so I think this is somewhere where we really are pushing for additional funds and in terms of the situation with the host families, because of the ethnic, um, uh, the ethnicity in Afghanistan, many uh, or Tajiks are going to Tajikistan, Uzbek uh, ethnic Uzbeks to Uzbekistan, 
uh, many Pashtuns to um, Pakistan. So right now, the situation for the refugees in these countries is quite good. Um, and the communities are welcoming them. But of course, uh, this has to be uh, monitored. Thank you uh, for this remark on the humanitarian situation in Afghanistan and any nearby country. Um, and I'd now like to turn to, to Nassim from Samuel O. So Nassim, or Basti told talk about the humanitarian situation um, in neighboring country in Iran and Pakistan. Um, can you maybe tell us a bit more about the rights that Afghan refugees enjoy in these two countries? Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for setting the scene, Arwasi. Um, so let's take the two countries separately because they, they give us different insights into status and rights. So first, if we start with Iran. So Iran has a national refugee policy in place based on the 51 convention and the 67 protocol. So the legal framework is there. Um, registered refugees, and I will come back to who's registered, have been given access to education, health, and livelihood opportunities. The government of Iran, they're responsible for doing status determination and refugee registration. Um, they also have access to universities now, and this is only from five years ago up to now. Now, that's the positive side. Now, there are a certain number of caveats. For example, on universities, Afghan refugees are required to give up their refugee status so that they can actually enter university and, and, and they're still barred from various degree programs. The most important caveat now on documentation, it's very expensive and quite difficult to acquire re refugee registration. So the Amayesh card, it's actually quite difficult, for example, because it requires um, literacy, digital knowledge, it's computerized. So there's been a, a, a series of decisions taken that have made it harder and harder for Afghan refugees to be able to register and they have to register year by year. Now, in terms of residency, another caveat, they can't just live anywhere. There are no-go areas, areas in the country where foreigners and refugees specifically aren't allowed to live, and they can't move from one area to another. And finally, another restriction, although they can officially work, they're restricted to specific professions, uh, so which are mainly kind of very hard labor, dangerous, risky, um, risky jobs. So um, these are for those who have status. But as I mentioned, many are undocumented. Many don't have legal status. Um, and as such, we still need to, to remind uh, these governments that there needs to be more than a status-based approach. We'll come back to that later. And I think that's the common link with Pakistan, the fact that many millions are undocumented also in Pakistan. So now turning to Pakistan, the situation, I'll be a bit shorter there. There's no national refugee um, legal framework. Um, Afghan refugees have not been able to access formal education opportunities to open bank accounts, to work, to buy properties, and they've been denied access to healthcare. So there's these restrictions that are clearly there. Now, starting in, in 2007, the government of Pakistan started a registration exercise supported by UNHCR, which gives Afghans a proof of registration card, a POR card, which provides a temporary legal stay. In Pakistan, UNHCR has had to negotiate um, having those extended, and they have been. So approximately 1.3 or 4 million have that POR card. Uh, but let's just be clear that this is, again, just temporary legal state. It doesn't really give a status or rights as such. And lastly, 
One point that worries me now with the with the current uh, flows is that Pakistan is talking about emulating the Iranian model, whereby they would set up camps closer to the borders, that they would forbid certain areas. So we're seeing one country learning from another, but not necessarily on those elements that could protect rights. Thanks, Nassim. And I think this leads me to my second question. So we've talked about the humanitarian response for refugees and those communities. Um, that's now a priority. Um, but you've also done research on the development response to protracted refugee crises in other regions. And so at this stage, drawing on lessons from this other situation, um, how should the EU and European donors start planning for a development response to the crisis that we're seeing in these two countries? Yes, exactly. So some of the other contexts where I've worked are, for example, the Horn of Africa. Uh, but I would say every region is obviously different. And this one, there's one specificity that I'd like to start with is how hard this region has been hit economically. Um, Iran's population, so whether it's Iranians or Afghans, have suffered dr dramatically under the US sanctions. And that needs to be a very clear advocacy area for European countries to address as a basis to develop a development response, meaning we have a population and economy under strain now in Iran that can't easily uh, integrate um, the, Afghan, the Afghan population. So we need to really think about how sanctions need to be lifted or there needs to be some advocacy around that for any European strategy on development responses. So again, targeting the whole population, not just the refugee population. Now, this linked to that is, you know, coming back again to this question of status-based approaches, and we need to move away from that because in Iran and Pakistan, we have huge numbers of both documented and undocumented refugees. So now we need to be able to have a strategy to be able to roll out a development response. You need to move away from status-based and to move to area and needs-based approaches. So that's going to be the second requirement for any kind of European thought around development responses. So the issue of documentation has been an extremely sensitive point, uh, whether it's the Amayesh cards in Iran or the POR cards in Pakistan. And this echoes what we found in other regions of the world uh, around you know, the humanitarian development peace nexus, let's be people-centered needs-based and not status-based. And third, what we've learned from the Regional Development Protection Program, the RDPP program in the Horn of Africa, is that we really need a theory of change to guide any development response and certain durable solution standards. So in other words, we need conditions to be met. We need several conditions to be met. We need to push for conditions-based assistance with outcomes in mind and not just uh, addressing some needs in some areas. Um, what does that mean? That means concretely that we need to build learning as an integral part uh, of any development response in the region. That will be tricky because for learning, you need to agree on data collection on common indicators to track progress. And that's been an issue that has been um, a source of tension in both Iran and in Pakistan. One way of addressing that in other regions has been to integrate governmental actors in community monitoring, in community mobilization, in data collection. So we need to think about, about that, learning data collection and indicators so that we know and can monitor the rights. Um, secondly, we need to also look at how we can direct funding to local NGOs and CSOs to allow for a locally led response. That's really 
what we've seen in the Horn of Africa, for example, is that when local CSOs are involved, that's when you see a much stronger social cohesion between refugees and hosts. That's when we see a positive impact on refugee and host interactions. So bringing them in, and again, the advantage we have is that there was another Afghan refugee crisis before, and these NGOs and CSOs exist. And lastly, donors need to be better organized. So donors need to organize among themselves, build a dedicated platform, uh, a dedicated donor coordination platform to ensure that, first of all, there's no duplication and there's a coherence in, in what the donors are asking, but also that there's a link with regional processes and more global processes around refugee, um, refugee responses. Thank you very much, Nassim. Um, that's that's really interesting. So after this overview of the situation in Afghanistan and the immediate neighborhood, um, I'll turn to my colleague, Hane, to talk about how European as, are responding to the situation. So Hane, we, we've talked about these humanitarian development responses. Um, that seems to be what the EU agree on and their ongoing discussion on how much and how quickly this funding could be dispersed. Can you tell us what it is that EU member states do not agree on at the moment? Thank you, Camille. Uh, yes, I mean, I think as you've mentioned at the beginning, uh, the EU uh, really struggles to show a unified front whenever they're confronted with an asylum crisis. And so um, the one area where we can still detect some consensus is on the external front, and in particular on securing the protection space in, in the region. But even if we zoom in there, we already see cracks appearing in that front. Um, a key question there is, for example, is a package of legal and safe protection pathways for Afghan refugees an integral ingredient if you are set to build and fortify uh, a protection space closer to the region. Some argue that this is the case because it's important that we um, show solidarity with those countries that are really bearing the brunt in terms of caring and hosting for African refugees. And the EU, for example, has then the opportunity to, to bring over, for example, those most vulnerable, uh, think about medical cases. So that's one dimension. However, others argue or actually rebut that idea saying that it will send, as you said, you know, the wrong signal and that it would convey the message to Afghan refugees that all can come um, uh, to Europe. Uh, and so there's a lot of, of tension there. But there are also other areas of um, disagreement in, in Europe. Um, and one thing is, for example, how to deal with Afghan uh, civilians who are already on EU soil um, or who will arrive in, in the next couple of weeks or, or months. And, and so there the big burning question is, how does the EU uh, prepare itself for a potential uptick in arrivals of Afghan civilians? And on one hand, you see um, government leaders arguing for uh, border management and really investments there. Uh, and others actually are already sounding the alarm bell and, and deem this an opportune moment um, to, to state that uh, the right to asylum, which is actually enshrined in EU law, is up for negotiation. And that it's uh, uh, that switching it on and off is a kind of tool that you can use to deal with uh, crises of, of this kind. So the, yeah, the big question is how the EU will learn and apply the many lessons that it has learned in 2015 and 2016. 
Thanks. And that, that's actually my, my next question, Hani. So there's been a lot of question, there's been a lot of discussion, question as to how Europe can draw a lesson from the previous crisis to better prepare, better respond to a potential increase in um, the arrival of Afghan asylum seekers at its border. What are this lesson learned? Um, and more specifically, maybe what has changed at operational level in the past five, six years? Yes, well, I think uh, a key lesson that, that government leaders across the globe have learned of late is that what you want to avoid is chaos at the borders. Why? Um, there's then uh, it triggers a humanitarian concern for refugees and those who find themselves in very deplorable conditions, but also because it triggers concern and anxiety sometimes amongst the host population. Questions emerge: Can can we do this? Are our government government leaders in in able to really cope with this uh, crisis? So border management is really key, and so at this moment in time, we should be thinking about um, joint operational plans between, for example. EU external member states and Frontex thinking really through uh, what are the staff, uh, the kind of infrastructure that will need to be put in place so that people who arrive uh, can be identified, security checks can be uh, conducted and all of those kind of elements. But another area is of course asylum and it's hard to overestimate the, the variety and, and the depth of the lessons that the EU um, has gained from the 2015-2016 uh, crisis. So both the EU agency, but also member states have really experimented with different kinds of uh, practices. Uh, and it's really key that we draw on those in the coming period. Um, and also the COVID pandemic has further expanded that learning, bringing in a lot of digital tools, which we can actually now apply. So let's have a look at a few um, areas, for, for example, registration. Uh, rather than having asylum seekers queue for hours or days and end in front of uh, administrative, uh, administrative offices, uh, we have moved toward, for example, the setup in a number of countries of what is called first arrival setups or centers. So, and, and the hotspots that we've seen um, set up in Italy and, and Greece exemplify that, but also member states have done it. This is really about having one locality where um, registration offices are there where those responsible medical checks for identity checks, those who are responsible for reception facilities work together and make sure that they align their practices uh, so that um, asylum seekers can quickly access uh, those services, but also that there's a, a natural and a good flow, a smooth flow amongst those service and operations. Um, and uh, if also the, the COVID um, pandemic has resulted, for example, in the digitalization of some of those re registration processes, think about making online appointments for the registration um, or actually already uh, filling out uh, parts of the dossier. Similarly, when we look at asylum processing, 2015 learns us a lot. And one of those piloted measures is what is called processing centers. And it's very much the same principle. Under one roof, you put caseworkers, um, country of origin experts, um, legal assistance, so that you make sure that the procedural steps are aligned smoothly. And there's strong evidence to uh, suggest that that really results in the reducing of the length of the asylum process. Uh, and this is really uh, quite uh, crucial. And again, the COVID pandemic has really made it a standard tool now than a toolbox of asylum authorities to, for example, conduct remote uh, processing. Um, and also uh, reception facilities use it to quickly identify a spot available in the reception system. But to end, I mean, all of those measures 
really need advanced planning. And here is, I think, really key to, to remind ourselves that the EU and member states have invested heavily in forecasting and scenario building mechanisms and tools. Uh, why was that? Well, uh, the Syrian crisis really took Europe by surprise and many government leaders said never again. And so this is really the question. So what are these tools, these forecasting tools telling us about the number of Afghan refugees that may come in the coming period, their profile, but also if we know these different kinds of scenarios, what are the staff, the infrastructure, the funding that's available that we need to mobilize now and start for prepping now? Thanks. Thank you, Hane. Um, so as you say, many disagreement at political level, but a number of changes and investment at operational level that could be leveraged, um, but they need to be this, uh, this effort to prepare. So, I mean, thank you all for this rich analysis on what's happening in Afghanistan, in neighboring countries, uh, how Europe is trying to respond uh, to the crisis um, and all the obstacles that European leaders are facing now. Um, for the next half hour, I'd like to move to Q&A. Um, so please type any question you have in the chat box or email events at migrationpolicy.org. Um, and maybe I'll start with a question for Urbasi and Hane, um, if you want to take it in this order, on resettlement and private sponsorship. Um, so we know, I know the main development of the 2015-16 crisis has been the creation of safe and legal pathways to Europe, that we have now more EU member states that have created or expanded um, their resettlement programs. Some have even op opened private sponsorship schemes. Is that something we could see in the next months? Um, what are, I mean, according to you, what could be the implication for this existing uh, resettlement scheme? Do you think that also mean other crises are going to be deprioritized as a result of putting priority uh, on, on the Afghanistan situation? Thank you, Camille. Uh, we have um, been given assurances by many member states on uh, upscaling resettlement for Afghans. And of course, um, the UNHCR resettlement program is in agreement with member states and Afghans, of course, have to cross an international border. And so this upscaling um, is in addition to the numbers that they have already allocated to UNHCR uh, with under its global program. So they will not be taking slots from other refugee groups. So that's a very, very positive sign. Uh, and we will be upscaling um, for Afghans. And what we're trying to ensure in this new upscaling that refugees who are included from the new caseload um, also are particularly vulnerable. Um, and we also would like to include refugees who've already been in a protected situation, such as in Pakistan and Iran for many, many years, and who are very, very vulnerable. So there's a strict vulnerability criteria that needs to be applied uh, for our resettlement program, which we submit to member states. We're also advocating for complementary pathways, as you've mentioned. So for example, for family reunion cases um, and other examples in terms of scholarships, sponsorships. So we hope to advance on this um, in the coming months. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to add to that that um, I think this is a great test for the Global Compact for Refugees that was signed uh, a few years ago, and it's a great test for resettlement. Again, it's been one of the 
durable solutions that's been the least utilized um, over any uh, refugee crisis. So I think this is an opportunity for the world to put action behind words in terms of what responsibility sharing means and how to use resettlement. Um, so just building on that, I think it's also important to recognize that right now, Afghans should be deemed as a as a group deserving prima facie refugee status, uh, again, as other refugee groups have in the past. And so that we move beyond some of these bureaucratic administrative hurdles and move towards recognizing this group-based recognition, moving beyond some of our documentation issues that I mentioned earlier. We really need to, to address those sensitive points, agree that they are to be recognized as refugees um, uh, outside of their own borders and be able to use resettlement. But as many Afghans have told us over the years, um, they dream of much more. They dream of becoming students abroad. And we've seen this recently with mobilization of universities in the UK and in Europe. I think there's a greater movement now for various actors of civil society to also be involved beyond states. And I think this is, again, some of the opportunities that this Afghan refugee crisis can present, this broader mobilization across public and private, across states and civil society, so that we provide beyond uh, a legal, legal rights. We also provide social status and, and a future um, for Afghans and their families abroad. Thanks, Nassim. Um, Hane, do you want to react on the question on resettlement, private sponsorship, um, and maybe status in Europe? Yeah, um, I think uh, the additionality uh, element is so crucial, but Avasi was saying uh, that it doesn't take away from resettlement spots already uh, identified or e-marked for other crises which are ongoing and also need uh, support. Uh, but yes, I mean, I think in, in Europe, we've really seen a huge expansion in knowledge and, and the expertise uh, in doing uh, resettlement and sponsorship. In, at 2000, in 2015, there was a handful of, of member states that had been involved in resettlement, and now we have more than 20 engaging in that, and, and a growing number um, also uh, using private sponsorships uh, set up. So that's really a, a good development and something to, to mobilize. There is a lot of uh, support also from the European Asylum Support Office, uh, both in terms of training and knowledge sharing, but also they have the key role in also coordinating some of the resettlement operations in, for example, Turkey. And so if this is a if this is an opportunity again for a number of member states saying we want to make sure that we resettle from, for example, Pakistan, a lot of these um, operational activities uh, could be coordinated. And I think lastly, communication is also really quite crucial. Uh, as Arvasi was explaining, a resettlement is often is well, is, is set on making sure that you identify uh, the right people, those who are particularly vulnerable, those who cannot be uh, ultimately returning home or locally integrated. And so really conveying that to the public, I think will be also quite crucial in understanding and conveying why we're doing this and why we're um, mobilizing these kind of legal pathways for certain categories amongst uh, uh, African refugees. Thanks, Annie. Um, I have another question for you, Obasi, on numbers. Um, a few people are wondering, you know, if their figures estimate for how many Afghans have crossed to Pakistan and Iran, um, and to what extent you've seen a closure at the border. Um, you, you already mentioned a bit, you already talked a bit about it, but uh, specifically, um, a few people ask whether these borders are close to uh, for asylum seekers. 
Thank you. Um, the border situation has been a little bit erratic, um, particularly in the last uh, week uh, with border closures, opening, uh, closing, uh, opening for part-time of the day. But what we have been observing is a regular flow of Afghans into Pakistan who have been allowed. Uh, many of them have been going for medical treatment. There we are aware of ambulances taking them up to the Peshawar hospital. We are aware of Pakistanis returning to uh, Pakistan. We're also aware of cross-border movements of Pakistans and Afghans coming in from these countries. Um, so it's been an interesting um, phenomena right now, but we have not seen asylum seekers, people going in and then seeking asylum in as one would have expected given the crisis. So right now we haven't seen a refugee movement um, and we're closely mon monitoring the borders. We're putting in new monitoring tools. Uh, we're also ensuring that uh, with the governments we have access to the borders, as I mentioned. And with that, we hope to be able to um, come up with very concrete numbers um, given the fluid situation. Thanks. I, I just have a follow-up question on this um, about the COVID-19 response, because how, you know, how coherent are the COVID responses at the border entry point? Um, what have you seen in terms of measure to try to monitor this, uh, this situation? We have our border monitoring um, teams have informed us that COVID measures are in place and people are tested. And if they are uh, tested, then they are sent to separate uh, health facilities uh, if they're assessed as being positive. But we haven't seen or heard of major uh, numbers of people who've crossed and who've been um, impacted with COVID. Thanks. Um, I'll now turn maybe to Nassim, um, if you want to speak to the, the role of the Afghan diaspora in Europe, you know, has this network can influence um, the call for the creation of safe and legal pathways, uh, but also how they may influence um, the migration routes in the next few months. Yes, so there's been some research done, for example, on the role that the diaspora can play mainly on the emergency response. And as much as today we're talking about the refugee response, there's also obviously the needs in Afghanistan. So the diaspora already have been mobilizing humanitarian assistance, have been intervening in many communities that I've been to in, in, in Afghanistan very often. Uh, community members mentioned diaspora members as those that have helped them really access services. So I think continuing that focus on being able to access populations in Afghanistan, that's one role that the diaspora continues to play. Um, now, looking at the refugee response specifically, we need to already think about integration and inclusion, whether it's in Europe or elsewhere where Afghan refugees are going, the diaspora can play a great role in mobilizing um, their own resources to be able to ensure that Afghans can integrate the societies they go to, to get beyond the language barriers, go beyond the cultural barriers, legal barriers, really to take them in and guide them through. So diaspora associations all across hosting countries will need to be very much involved on integration and inclusion in communities. And again, that's one of the key pledges uh, and elements of the global uh, compact for, for refugees. And now in terms of creating these uh, pathways and, and whether it's you know sponsorship or family re reunification, those are obviously the elements that we think about as well when we talk about 
diaspora uh, diaspora involvement. Um, so yeah, at all those levels, the diaspora will definitely need to be uh, to be uh, implicated. And there are already some existing initiatives that the Danish Refugee Council, for example, the DEMAC program, and there are other programs that across the years have been looking into, into doing just that. So we're not starting from scratch. Thanks, Nassim. And maybe if I can follow up um, with you on, you know, whether you think um, the US can work with the EU um, in this effort, uh, we have not seen in the past a lot of coordination. Um, so I don't know if you can speak to that and maybe Hane as well, um, if you have some thought to share on this coordination effort. Yes, um, I mean, definitely this type of transnational coordination hasn't been a great strength um, of the refugee system. And, and it's true that Europe has been also very Eurocentric in its approach. But right now we have a crisis that many agree has been caused also by uh, the US decisions. So clearly there's a responsibility here for the US to support Europe and to, and to support other hosting countries. Um, Again, I think in recent days, someone told me, um, you know, that we have the polluter pays principle in terms of climate change and the environment. We should have a principle like this in this refugee response. So definitely we need, we need more of that support. Um, and we need to just be very careful that the support doesn't equate, for example, setting up new um, countries, third, um, third party countries that temporarily host refugees without necessarily giving them status or rights. So one of the areas that I'm a bit concerned at the moment uh, is what I've seen in recent, uh, in recent weeks, all the discussions around, for example, integrating countries that haven't to date, for example, been hosting Afghan refugees and asking them to be the first site for protection um, before, for example, being transferred to the US. So here I'm thinking about countries such as Albania, Montenegro, Serbia, but also Uganda, it's great to have other countries joining in the support effort, but the uncertainties and the lack of information around what happens to refugees in those countries is something to be clearly watched and monitored. So I would say yes to cooperation, US-EU, but let's make sure that that's not just externalization or, or subcontracting, let's say, of refugee responsibilities and protection. Thanks, Nassim. And, and yes, we know there's been a lot of question about what this agreement with, with this country that have accepted to host temporarily some of these Afghan um, and tell in terms of what happened if they do not um, get cleared to, to go to the US in, in the end um, and whether they will stay in this country or be asked um, to return maybe to Afghanistan. Um, Hane, I don't know if you want to comment on the EU-US um, situation and um, then I, I'll, I'll go back to Orvesi uh, on the role of UNHCR in this. Yes, I mean, I think uh, also what uh, Nassim's points were earlier on about uh, donor coordination, I think is a really crucial one, but also thinking through what she was saying, not just simply responding to needs, but really thinking through what is it that we in the short, medium and longer term want to achieve in, in particular areas, and can we make sure that the different actors within the, EU, uh, within the international community, EU, US, and other actors really uh, work together in, in defining those. Uh, I think that's crucial. But also, it's an interesting time because the US has also returned to the resettlement scene, and, and, and the Biden administration has also made clear commitments in, in that respect. And so this is also, we've seen in the past that when the international community comes together on resettlement, it really stimulates more and more states 
to take on a particular role, to, to up their quotas, uh, and to see this as um, one puzzle piece in an important endeavor to make sure that um, the um, certain African refugees who cannot stay in the neighboring uh, countries can actually be resettled or sponsored uh, by states. So I think this is really an opportunity uh, for us to, to really apply that. Thanks, Annie. And yes, I, I think what we're seeing is the US is now back, but there's still a lot to be rebuilt um, on, on that resettlement um, operation. So it will be interesting to see how quickly um, they, they can move forward with that. Um, Orvasi, there have been a few questions on the role of UNHCR in this evacuation. Um, you've not been involved, but um, there's been a question on whether you're in communication with the U.S. Department of State on the referral process, um, you know, beyond the special immigrant um, visa holder, uh, I mean, applicants um, that are being evacuated at the moment. Thank you. Um, you, you, you. You clearly made the point that UNHCR is not involved in the evacuations. So UNHCR's mandate is um, on the resettlement. Um, as I mentioned, you've got to cross an international border. It's uh, quite a lengthy case processing that UNHCR is involved with at the request of member states. With the evacuations, this is very much a, a member state-led evacuation process. Um, and UNHCR has no involvement in them. Uh, of course, we are kept uh, informed of the programs. Um, and I know there has been a lot of confusion vis-a-vis -vis resettlement and ev evacuations and the terminology. And we've had a lot of queries um, by many, many Afghans, even in uh, Afghanistan, uh, asking for UNHCR to help them with the uh, resettlement slash evacuation process. And we've had to be very, very clear in our communication and messaging where our mandate lies. Um, and of course, the situation at the airport today is very, very difficult. And there are a lot of people who feel that they cannot remain in um, Afghanistan today and hope to be evacuated. Now, of course, many Afghans may not understand the SIV um, program, uh, this is something where, you know, you've had to have worked for the U.S. Uh, for several years. Um, and then they have other programs where if you don't meet the SIV criteria, then you could be referred under a different program. But I think I'll just close by saying that, you know, very much the two programs are very, very distinct. And UNHCR is mandated to support in the resettlement of refugees. Thank you. Um, yeah, and I think what, what you mentioned about the complexity of all this different path that we're also seeing appear and, and the confusion as to who is eligible for, for what, which one of this pathway and also when this may come through, because we have a number of people who are SIV applicant may qualify, but just have no idea where the application is and so are trying to find other way to, to be evacuated at the moment. Um, I, I'd like to go back to a point we mentioned a bit earlier about the question of return, um, because this is something that we've seen in Europe um, has been a question, has been a source of division. Uh, on August 5th, we had this six EU member state that released that letter calling for the commission to uh, continue negotiation with Kabul to you know, continue return to Afghanistan. Um, UNHCR has issued um, a statement on this matter, so maybe Orvasi, if you I can say a few words on this, on this non-return advisory to Afghanistan. Is that something you often do uh, and what trigger it? 
and maybe Hani, if you can talk a bit about what where we are now in terms of the discussion between the different EU member states on this question. So uh, UNHCR issued the non-return advisory. Um, this usually happens when the situation in a country clearly um, is at such, a, at such a state that people should not be returned, you know, failed asylum seekers who have gone through a due process in any member state and who in normal circumstances can be returned uh, to a state where they come from. But given the situation in Afghanistan today, uh, what we've been pleading with member states, and many have um, taken up the call and stopped the deportations of failed asylum seekers from Europe, um, is to not return these people right now. Of course, if the situation changes, um, then we would review our non-return advisory. But right now, we're making it very, very clear that no failed asylum seeker um, should be returned to Afghanistan today. Yeah, thanks for me. I, um, yeah, I think in Europe, it, the, the situation has evolved very quickly. Um, now a number of, of yeah, the states who originally said that they would still return are, have now retracted that statement or have said that this will not occur. Um, when it comes to uh, those who are already on EU soil and either are in uh, the process uh, with regard to asylum or have had their uh, claim rejected, um, we will see a lot of those going to appeal probably or a new application being uh, submitted. Uh, UNHCR has also issued a statement asking for a kind of temporary uh, pausing of, of asylum processing until uh, the situation in, in Afghanistan is much clearer. And we've seen uh, countries like the Netherlands and also Belgium very quickly also changing that and actually suspending uh, asylum processing. It will be also really interesting to see uh, the role that the European Asylum Support Office will have in this. Um, they have one of their uh, flagships have been also the country guidance for Afghanistan. So really supporting in an attempt to support member states in the processing and assessments of asylum claims from uh, Afghanistan. They have developed this, but of course at this moment in time, this is now outdated. They're quickly working uh, from the EASO to make sure that the reports on security situation in, in Afghanistan is being shared with, with member states. But of course, it will be really interesting to see how quickly they can adapt um, their country guidance so that member states have uh, a good basis to start reviewing those claims so that also those people who are now on Seoul and need a status need to be able to access services, um, start their lives here, uh, that this can actually be done as quickly as possible. Thanks. And, and maybe to follow up on this, um, I have two questions that maybe are for, for you, Hane, and for Nassim, in terms of the concern on the question of refoulement. Um, I think we've seen a number of statements from some member states that they would not let Islam, Afghan asylum seekers on their territory. Um, to what extent is that concern? What can be done? Um, I don't know, Hane, if you, if you want to start and, and then maybe Nassim, if you want to react as well. Yes, uh, and, and I think I alluded to that uh, earlier on. Um, we've seen, for example, Greece uh, saying that, uh, yeah, they cannot be the entry gate or maybe the sole recipient uh, of Afghan um, civilians and, and refugees in, in the time to come. And if that would be the case, that they would see themselves uh, in need of, of suspending the right to asylum. Uh, EU law does not foresee a suspension uh, of that right uh, to protection. Um, and we've seen uh, a similar statement, for example, made in 2015 or 16 in relation to the Syrian crisis by Hungary. And at the time, we saw a lot of 
uh, um, protests uh, and also from EU uh, actors really making this clear that this was not an option. Um, we see far less um, protests these days, it's far, far more hesitant reaction, but it goes to show that if the right to asylum within or across the EU is to be upheld, that this means that uh, the necessary solidarity is shown uh, to those countries that are at the external borders of the EU, because otherwise it's easy for, for example, uh, Belgium to say we will uphold the right to asylum if those who arrive are actually at, arriving at the border and it cannot come in. And so that kind of solidarity will be key to show um, and, and to uphold that right to asylum in, in the months to come. Thanks, Anne. And I, and I think that, that yeah, indeed, that solidarity is going to be key. And there's a concern that in this time of crisis, um, it may not actually materialize, but tension between all these different countries may become even worse. Um, Nassim, do, do you want to react to this as well? Yes, so the, the advisory that UNHCR put out really calls on this, calls on, on paying particular attention, not just to non-return, but also to the risks of refoulement if returns happen. And I think it's important to situate this against because many of us in Human Rights Watch, for example, Amnesty International, have been calling on this for years now in the context of Afghanistan, with starting in 2015 with Pakistan and Iran's push for the undocumented Afghans to return home. And these were for many refugees who had lost their status. So I think this question of refoulement comes back on the table today, and it's incredibly important. It's not just linked to refugee status, it's also linked to just international human rights law and to ensuring that no one should be returned to a country where they would face uh, torture, persecution, inhuman uh, treatment, all of the issues that we know are here right now uh, endangering women uh, women and children in Afghanistan. So it's very important to just set it straight that this is what international human rights law requires us to think about and that there's no, um, there's no gray area around this. So no refoulement, that principle has to be upheld now. Thanks, and maybe we have time for one final question on the delivery of aid to, to IDP, um, maybe, or Bas, if you can, if you can address that. Um, you know, what are the guarantees that you're trying to get from, from Taliban, from other potential group um, to be able to deliver this assistance uh, to have access to this population? Well, we have been assured by the Taliban that humanitarian workers can continue with their activities. Uh, we recently, last, uh, in the last couple of days, actually did a field assessment mission, uh, which was successful in monitoring our work. Um, we, we have some level of freedom of movement within um, the country, as I mentioned, with our partners. Now, of course, um, it is a very difficult environment because uh, it is sometimes not clear uh, how the application of the Taliban's uh, narrative of you know, humanitarians can stay and deliver, because sometimes we do see that um, in the humanitarian workers are stopped or prevented from taking action. But we are working very closely to try and get um, um, sort of standard operating procedures on how to work with the Taliban and make sure that we can have full access to our beneficiaries to make sure that we can deliver the essential humanitarian aid. So this is something that we're, we're hoping to progress on. Um, it's, it's a difficult situation right now, but we are finding that over the coming, com, coming days that we will be able to get more and more access. And we hope that this would in, in, ensure that people are assisted with the needs that they have. 
Thanks. And actually, I'm just going to raise um, a, a final question um, on Turkey, um, maybe over to Hane. There's been a lot of discussion on um, another EU-Turkey Turkey agreement. Uh, the Turkish authorities have mentioned they were not interested uh, in such a deal. Um, and yet, I think we, we have some European leaders that have still um, referred to these ideas um, in public or in private. Um, I, yeah, do, do you want to react to this as, as, you know, how likely do you think that is and how high is going to be the political price for, for such an agreement? Um, yes, well, I think this is indeed, I mean, I think from a theoretical perspective, um, it's very understandable that government leaders are putting this forward. I think the EU-Turkey deal set a precedent um, for how Europe deals with a sudden or an imminent uh, flow of, of refugees and, and migrants. Um, and so, yeah, a number of government leaders have suggested that we add an Afghan com component. It's a, and that's, that's not just a formality that has huge implications um, for, for Afghan refugees, of course, but also for the society in which they, they are residing. Um, it means that um, making sure that they have a protection status, making sure that they have access to uh, the right to work, some of the elements that also Nassim was referring to as to and how that really shapes the, the possibilities that a refugee has in their new host country. Uh, but this was being proposed at a moment when Turkey is, is extremely uh, frustrated as to the implementation of the current EU-Turkey deal. Um, a lot of components, for example, visa liberalization, but also toll union and other elements have not materialized and were promised uh, to Turkey. And this is, of course, for the government, was something that they could then also sh show as, as some of the, uh, the benefits that they would uh, reap from, from this uh, agreement. And so we're now negotiating a new uh, deal. Um, it will be very costly, uh, but also the question is very much whether um, the local population is, is ready uh, to shoulder this responsibility much more further. There's an economic crisis looming. Uh, the COVID pandemic has had its impact. And so uh, the feasibility um, yeah, of such a, an agreement is, is quite low, but also the price will be extremely high. If it does go ahead, we've seen in the last months now and years uh, that the more we show as Europe that we're really concerned about the numbers who arrive at our borders, uh, the greater uh, and the heavier that the migration card plays at the negotiation table. And this is something that we need to also take into account uh, when not only uh, trying to hear and develop a migration response. This has implications on matters far beyond whether it's about foreign affairs, trade, and other things that the EU has to negotiate with countries in the months to come. And it's very important to, to consider that as well. Thanks, Hane. And, and I think the point you mentioned about um, those communities in Turkey, but I think also in Iran and Pakistan is an important point on how we also think about this community when, when planning for these responses and having all of this uh, political discussion. Um, I think we've come to an end. Thank you um, everyone for, for joining today. Thank you um, to our three panelists. I'm really sorry that we could not answer all of the question. Um, we got many. Um, and so the audio will be available on the event website um, later today. And it's also available on our podcast application. Um, thank you very much, um, everyone.